uh, for today's sermon comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. It's part of the concluding part of a longer narrative about the story of the flood. Here we hear the words that God speaks to Noah after the flood. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of God for us today. Well, good morning. I should have talked to Lois or to Jake or somebody who knows some songs, but there's a song that's been in my head for the last several days, something like, and if you kind of know it, help me out, and God said to Noah, it's going to be a floody, floody, God said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody, those out of the muddy, yeah. Children of the Lord. Okay, and there's about another dozen verses, right? Okay. Well, good. I'm kind of glad to get that sort of, not quite purged. I'll probably have to sing in another day or two. But uh, get that sort of kind of out of my system a little bit. Uh, Because we've been reading and uh, we read about the flood a little bit there a moment ago. And I've been looking at uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9 of uh, this, uh, this book of Genesis this summer, as I've been with you, I've been preaching out of Genesis. And I thought, well, let's, let's do the flood this week. And uh, so I settled here, chapter 9, that statement about covenant and all of that. You know, the thing about that song, uh, it, and, and it's certainly appropriate for our children to sing, and uh, I'll be singing it a few more days now. Maybe you will be too. But it doesn't really do credit to the real depth of the story of the flood. It really doesn't. And in light of the kind of week we've had this past week, it certainly doesn't. Uh, This week has been sort of a banner week of stuff that just captures our attention and creates a deep ache in our hearts. Uh, 
We hear stories about what's happening in Venezuela and the political uh, rhetoric that keeps rising to fever pitch between North Korea and our country. We uh, hear stories that come out of uh, the Red Sea in Yemen where pirates throw off people into the ocean for no good reason. Uh, And on and on the stories go, and it sort of capstones itself this week on Friday in Charlottesville, Virginia, as we've already reflected on and prayed about this morning. All of those stories and so much more, I think, at least ought to, cause us to be chastened and begin to ask our our own, create in ourselves conversations about how we ourselves fail to live fully godly human lives. The reality of trouble in the world is not a new thing, and it finds itself all the way back into these ancient stories, the stories of the flood. And uh, it may be okay with our children to talk about floody, floody, and getting animals on the ark, but that kind of narration forgets the real issue that's behind the story of the flood, which is nothing less than human sin. And God looked upon the earth and saw sin and wickedness all over it. And it grieved his heart deeply. There's a a story behind the story about the flood that causes us, it creates a space for us as believers to think about and reflect about how Uh, How does God deal with sin? And how is it when I really get a hold of sin and I understand my own culpability with sin and I see the sinfulness in the world that exists, how is it that God chooses to stay his hand at the reality of the brokenness and the stupidity and the evil that exists in our world? It's all around us. Why is it that God chooses to do that? Well, there's several things about the the flood narratives that I do think are helpful to us. Uh, One is, and I've already hinted at it, is that, uh, that sin and the reality of human frailty and brokenness and stupidity and violence that uh, plagues our world today and then is not something that God chooses to ignore. In fact, it grieves his heart dearly. It makes him come to the point of saying, why did I ever start this thing in the beginning? And unless we think that somehow or another that there's something awful about the fact that God chooses to sort of wipe the slate clean in the flood narrative, I'd want to remind you of a couple things. One is that all of the other ancient narratives among the ancient peoples about the gods, that when the gods found themselves dealing with a Ralkreant humanity, just blew them off altogether. The God that we read about in Scripture does something very different. He saves a remnant and gets to the story that we've got before us today. And the second thing that I'd want to say as we think about the reality of evil and the brokenness in the world and how God perceives it and wrestles with it may be best illustrated by a story that Madeleine Albright tells some years ago when she was Secretary of State in the United States. She found herself on a panel with uh, a fellow by the name of Elie Wiesel 
who uh, was a Holocaust survivor and a philosopher and writer and uh, essayist. And they were on a panel together, and uh, she writes this. She says, not long after September 11, I was on a panel with Elie Wiesel, and he, was, he asked us to name the most unhappy character in the Bible. Oh, so off they went. Some people said it was Job because of the trials he endured. Some people said Moses because he was denied entry into the promised land. Some said it was Mary because she witnessed the crucifixion of her son. But Wazel said he believed that the right answer to the question of who was the most unhappy person in the Bible was God. Because of the pain he must surely feel in seeing human beings fight, kill, maim, abuse, bully, and destroy one another in the name of the Lord. I think Wazel was on to something. If we read the witness of Scripture well, we understand that God's heart is deeply, deeply grieved with the reality of sin in the world. It's not uh, the fact that he stays his hand is not because he's unattentive and it's not because it grieves him. There is something else at work in the narratives of the flood story that is worth our attention. Somehow or another, I think that in the flood, God realized, and perhaps we do too, realize that if we're going to see redemption with humankind, it will not be because you obliterate them. It's not because you raise an arm of violence against another. That will not bring about redemption and new beginnings. The thing that brings about redemption and new possibilities is nothing less than a commitment to stay with somebody else and hang with them through to the very end. That's why we find in the narratives of the flood this act, this remarkable act of God, and the way that it's given to us in this text is through, uh, is literarily, it's through language. And the language we hear, it begins in chapter 8, verse 1, it's this way. It's three words. God remembered Noah. Those three words are the key for us to understand the heart of God. First of all, God is the subject of that little sentence. It's not that Noah remembered God and started being all religious that saved Noah. No, the subject is God, and he's the one who does the remembering, and he's the one who saves Noah, right? And the second word in that, remember, is a much better word than the word forget. Because in the pagan world, the gods forgot human beings. And in my life, and perhaps in your life, and certainly in the national uh, narrative that's playing out right now, there's a lot of amnesia in the world. We're forgetting some stuff. We're forgetting a lot of things. We're selectively remembering stuff. And by so doing, we end up perpetuating more atrocities. No, the word remember is a very good word. It's the kind of word that that is so critical to being human that we cannot live without remembering. Oliver Sacks, who's a neuroscientist, quotes one of his patients as saying this, quote, you have to begin to lose 
your memory, if only in bits and pieces, to realize that memory is what makes our lives. Life without memory is no life at all. Our memory is is our coherence, our reason, our feeling, even our action. Without it, we are nothing. Memory. Glenn Campbell passed away this past week. Another, that probably didn't make the headlines after all the other stuff that I made. But do you notice that? 81 years old, Glenn Campbell. I loved, uh, I'm a lineman for the county. I guess that's because I grew up in Kansas. And uh, the Wichita lineman was one of my favorite songs. Uh, But uh, Campbell suffered with Alzheimer's the last decade of his life. Did you follow that? Perhaps you saw some of the videos, how he courageously even... In, in the mid in his mid seventies, as he realized he had Alzheimer's, was courageous enough to let people talk to him and interview him. I saw one interview with him and his wife, where he he couldn't hardly remember the names of his daughters. His life was coming apart. Vicky and I drove forty three hundred miles the last three weeks to see various family members one of which is Vicky's mama, who's got advanced Alzheimer's, who doesn't know her. She, she doesn't, my mother-in-law doesn't even know her own husband now. Memory. It's a devastating thing to be in a situation where you do not remember. And yet, in the witness of the Scripture, in the book of Genesis, time after time after time, we hear these words, and God remembered And God remembered. We bump over into Exodus. And the people of Israel are in bondage in the land of Egypt. And you know what the language is? And God remembered His people. Seventy-three times in the Old Testament, we hear this language, and God remembered. And God remembered His covenant. God does not forsake or relinquish us to our own stupidity, blindness, brokenness, and sin. He will not relinquish us. And to make that clear to these, this ancient family, Noah and his family, and to make it clear for all time, God does something, the sign that's here in this story. We call it a what? We call it a rainbow. But that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. And God said, I will set my bow in the sky. Did you hear the language? He didn't say rainbow. No, when we hear rainbow, we think about blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven. Boy, I didn't sing that one very well. (laughs) Which is a great song, but that's not... the, The bow is a symbol of war and aggression. God takes the weapons of war and destruction and sets it aside in the skies and the heavens to remind himself, not us, it's a sign to God that he is choosing to be gracious to us. You see, there's some, it's nice to see a rainbow and remember God's love and all of that good stuff, and please do that. But do not forget that the bow in the sky, the sign of this story, is a statement by God to say, I am refusing to choose punishment in order to bring about some good end. Instead, 
I am going to just stay with these people through thick and thin. And it gets pretty thin at times. All the way up to the cross, God stands with human beings in their stupidity and their frailty and their selfishness and their greed and in their racism and in their selfism and in all the other isms that we see in myself and in you and in the world around us. God chooses to stay with us. And in so doing, in making that kind of commitment, that kind of promise, it creates the space for something really, really remarkable to happen. It creates the space for us to get up out of the dust, to to come up out of the brokenness of our lives, and start all over again with God in our midst. Back in 1991, the film City Slickers, I, there's more sermon illustrations in City Slickers than there ought to be. I think I've used it sometime in the last year here, but I haven't used this part of City Slickers, I don't think. One of the characters, the, there's the Billy Crystal character, one of the other characters, one of his buddy is Phil, who has just screwed up his life all, all to pieces. And there comes a point where they've had the, some, some sort of a little crisis, and they've managed it, but just barely, and Phil is in his tent, crying his heart out that he screwed up his life, he's messed up his marriage, he's messed up his kids, everything has gone south in his life. And the Billy Crystal character comes to Phil and says, hey, do you remember when we were kids? Do you remember when we were playing baseball out in the backyard and we'd hit the ball up into the tree and it gets stuck up in the tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did we call it? We called it, when that happened, we did a do-over. It's a do-over. We're going to start from scratch again. And in that moment, Phil or Billy, the Billy Christopher character says to Phil, look, you have an opportunity to start your life again. You get a do-over. A do-over. One of the things that is happening in the narratives of the flood is a reminder to you and to I that we are given the space because of God's unfathomable love and his capacity to restrain his need to deal with sin that creates space for you and I by the grace of God to have a do-over. A do-over. It comes to us in that space and in that place an opportunity for us to strike out once more to see if we can't do it a little better this time than the last time. And that's the case, church, I'm declaring to you by the grace of Jesus Christ this morning for the marriages that are in this room, for the broken relationships between parents and children, between parents and grandparents, for the stuff that's going on in your workplace, for the little feud that's happening with you and the neighbor, for the unrest that's occurring in our communities, for the ways in which hatred is being listened to more than love and it creates the tensions that we're experiencing in our country today, and those places and countless others, the word 
that comes to us in this little old story about the flood is a reminder that each of us, by God's grace, have a do-over. A do-over. And that's why, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, and I use these words perhaps as the best way I know to kind of close out this morning, these words of firm commitment and promise on behalf of God, who would say this, Isaiah 43, But now, says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, Oh, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Church, we have a God who has made a deep and abiding covenant, a promise to be faithful with us. Not because we've got our lives together, because we've got our act together, because we've presented ourselves all scrubbed up and clean and squeaky togetherness. It's squeaky clean, isn't it? Squeaky clean and all together. No! And we're reminded of it daily in our newspapers and blog feeds and reminded of it daily when we sit at table with one another we find ourselves not sitting at table with some persons as we were so helpfully reminded this morning at table. And in those moments, we need to remind ourselves that God seeks to redeem us and give us a do-over. Now, I think it's great fun to sing, and God said to Noah, there's going to be a floody floody. But what I'd rather you go out of here this morning reminding yourself is that God has created a covenant of love as we sang a little while ago and it extends and begins with you and transcends and seeks to transcend this whole world. Will you not respond to that this morning by the choices you make today and this week? Let's stand together and sing.